A small crowd of mostly women stood huddled beside a half-built two-story house on the west coast of Florida. Among them were craftsmen, typists, botanists, and lawyers. They came from all over, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and other major cities in the U.S. But that was all in the past, remnants of their past lives. Now they were in a town they'd built themselves from the ground up. Freshly paved walkways, landscaped homes, a general store, a bakery, and an eatery surrounded them. But of all their accomplishments, this half-finished house held their most prized possession, the three-day-old dead body of their leader and the world's last professed prophet, Cyrus Koresh Teed. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today, in a one-part episode, we're taking a deep dive into Koreshian Unity, a religious organization founded by Cyrus Koresh Teed. He believed that with the right techniques, humans could become immortal and heal any disease using their minds. From the 1870s to 1908, Teed's teachings on celibacy, gender equality, and anti-capitalism earned him competing reputations. Some saw him as the last true prophet, while others denigrated him as nothing more than a money-hungry homewrecker. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Born in 1839, Cyrus R. Teed was raised in the small town of Utica, New York, with his seven other siblings. Unable to afford a place of their own, his parents moved in with his grandfather, a Baptist preacher. As a young boy, Cyrus attended every sermon and developed a talent for public speaking. His family hoped he'd follow in his grandfather's footsteps, but life had other plans. When Cyrus was 11 years old, he dropped out of school to work on the Erie Canal and support the family. Days on the canal were grueling. Cyrus drove the animals that pulled the boats, requiring him to walk 30 miles a day. To make matters worse, he only made a third of what the adult men were paid. The heavy responsibility of being a breadwinner at such a young age took its toll. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. 
Please note she is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. In 2017, a study published in the Journal of Mental Health Policy and Economics found that children who work during childhood are at an increased risk of developing depressive symptoms during childhood. It's likely that life as an adolescent worker stressed young Cyrus to his limits. The resulting negative state of mind likely left him looking for something more. He worked for months at a time away from home. On these long days, he encountered a wide range of people and was likely introduced to religions and philosophies that ran counter to his Baptist upbringing. According to author Lynn Milner, it may have been during this time that Cyrus was exposed to a school of thought known as Swedenborgianism. Founded by Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th-century mystic, scientist, and religious philosopher, Swedenborgianism taught that the physical and spiritual worlds were connected. Swedenborg believed the body possessed a vital force, which could be used to heal others through spiritual methods. In these ideas, Cyrus found his calling. The older he got, the more Cyrus found himself drawn to this kind of scientific spiritualism. In 1859, at the age of 20, he left his life working on the canal behind. He wanted to study medicine at the Eclectic Medical College of the City of New York. Unlike more traditional doctors, eclectic physicians opposed surgery and narcotic drugs. Instead, they believed they could heal people using herbal medicines and spiritual practices. That same year, Cyrus married his 16-year-old second cousin, Fidelia Rowe, whom he called Delia. Soon afterward, they welcomed their son Arthur into the world. Unfortunately, this milestone proved the closest Cyrus ever got to a normal life. A short three years later, in 1862, Cyrus halted his studies. The Civil War had broken out, and he went to serve as a Union corporal. Cyrus committed to three years of enlistment, hoping to earn the respect that came with military service. But his time was cut short. In August of 1863, while on a march in Virginia, his left leg became paralyzed due to a medical condition. While recovering in a hospital, he may have trusted in his ability to heal himself using Swedenborg's teachings. The promised results never came, however. It took two arduous months for Cyrus to recover, and even then, his leg wasn't the same. Though Cyrus regained motor function in his leg, the Army found him unfit to serve. He was discharged well before his three years were up. From there, Cyrus returned to the Eclectic Medical College. In 1868, he graduated and returned to his hometown of Utica with Delia and Arthur. There, he started his career as an eclectic physician. But now, nearing 30 years old, Cyrus sought more than just an average career. He desperately wanted to experience the spiritual enlightenment he often heard of while working on the Erie Canal. For that, he took an interest in alchemy. He built a laboratory beside his home and spent his nights feverishly experimenting with old alchemy tools. He ran arcane tests with water baths, beakers, and crucibles, hoping to discover a scientific connection between the mind, soul, and body. Then, in October of 1869, Cyrus made a breakthrough. He claimed that he managed to turn lead into gold, though he couldn't quite explain how. Immediately afterward, an intense sensation overtook him, and he felt as though his soul left his body. 
In that state, a female angel appeared and the room flooded with light. She stood on a silver crescent and held a winged staff encircled by serpents. She looked very much like the prophesied woman with the moon under her feet from the Book of Revelation. The angel explained that she'd been watching Cyrus through many lifetimes and claimed she had an important message for him. She told Cyrus he was a descendant of the prophets Enoch, Moses, and Jesus. As such, he was the last and most powerful prophet, chosen to redeem the human race. Like Christ, she said he was destined to die for the salvation of those on earth. Before that, however, the angel told Cyrus he would have to find a female partner who embodied the divine feminine spirit. She would be his equal and his other half, the one to complete his destiny. Before the angel disappeared, she finished by telling Cyrus that any person who followed him would be granted immortality when they died. Cyrus came out of the divine trance forever changed. In the days and weeks after his vision, Cyrus started developing a religio-science hybrid in hopes of founding a utopia. He wrote down the mandates that people in his society would need to follow to achieve immortality. These included practicing celibacy in order to conserve their life force, deserting capitalism and its inequalities, and healing their bodies through mentalism. Cyrus passionately proselytized to the clients at the clinic he worked at and told the local Baptist church about his divine destiny. But the locals pushed back. Some of the Baptists began boycotting his practice. Even his wife, Delia, doubted her husband's claims. Yet despite the pushback, Cyrus remained undeterred. Faced with a town that wouldn't take his vision seriously, Cyrus decided to move. Cyrus and his family settled in Binghamton, New York, 100 miles away. That's where Cyrus met Abby Andrews. Andrews was a local doctor and Cyrus's first follower. Over the course of a year, Dr. Andrews became Cyrus's greatest confidant and friend. But beyond him, Cyrus's message fell on deaf ears. Once again, the townspeople denounced him and forced him to move. After this ordeal, Cyrus became a traveling physician and brought his wife and child along with him for some time. The couple moved to Pennsylvania, then to other towns in New York. Finally, though, Delia chose to return to Binghamton with her son. Her health had rapidly declined due to tuberculosis, and she wanted to be near her sister. Leaving his ailing wife behind, Dr. Cyrus pressed forward alone. From that point on, his relationship with his family appeared estranged as Delia's condition worsened. For the next 10 years, Cyrus kept in touch with his devoted follower Andrews and worked hard to further establish his religion. Many times he tried aligning himself with pre-existing religious movements, hoping to overtake them and convert their followers to his own beliefs. However, this ultimately proved futile. In every town Cyrus came across, when he told people about his unusual ideas, it destroyed his reputation and he was once again exiled. Some groups he wished to infiltrate, like the Shakers, treated him kindly at first, but ultimately viewed him as inconsequential. In 1880, 41-year-old Cyrus finally found some success when he moved into his parents' home in Moravia, located in upstate New York. While working for his family's mop business, he tried to save money for his utopia. Somehow, he managed to muster up enough enthusiasm with his message of equality to found a small commune in the town. The handful of members consisted of his sister Emma, his brother Oliver, and three women who'd left their husbands to join Cyrus's mission. 
But even with this glimmer of success, his time in Moravia didn't last. Rumors ran amok that Cyrus was having an affair with a follower while his wife slowly died back in Binghamton. The criticism led the commune to be dissolved, and Cyrus left Moravia for Syracuse, about 40 miles away. There, he and his brother opened a medical practice. By then, Cyrus had grown more confident in his message. Many who saw him speak described being hypnotized by his skillful oration and dazzling hazel eyes. It wasn't long before he ran into more trouble, however. Cyrus became embroiled in a scandal in Syracuse after a wealthy female patient warned authorities that he was a charlatan. The press covered the incident, and Cyrus faced charges. He and his brother had to close their practice, pack up their things, and head to New York City with four female followers in tow. The group moved into an apartment together. However, things were far from the utopia Cyrus had promised. He lacked substantial funds, and the commune often went hungry. It also lacked proper heating in the winters. Given the circumstances, it came as no surprise when the four eventually left. All alone again, Cyrus pressed forward. He was so focused that it barely seemed to register when he learned Delia died in October of 1884, the same month his mother also passed away. We don't know how Cyrus reacted to their deaths, but we do know that he remained obsessed with establishing a utopia. After years of failure, it seems likely that he was only able to stay in New York with a loan from Dr. Andrews, his last remaining follower. It took a few more years of traveling and proselytizing in New York before Cyrus caught his next break. At age 47, he managed to wrangle a follower of substantial influence and wealth. Her name was Thankful Hale. She changed everything. Thankful had connections and invited Cyrus to a convention in Chicago run by the Mental Science National Association. All expenses would be paid. Cyrus couldn't turn it down. The association was an umbrella organization open to all practicing mental scientists. They were united by the idea that diseases were products of negative thoughts. Only by believing in wellness could one truly heal. At the convention, Hale invited Cyrus to meet with the group's president, Andrew Swartz. Cyrus used his charm to great effect. Swartz seemed impressed with his medical background and his seamless marriage of spiritualism and science. Swartz, along with the group's board directors, were so impressed that they made a snap decision. Cyrus was elected as their new president. At the moment, he'd finally found a platform to fulfill his divine destiny. Coming up, Cyrus meets his divine feminine equal. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify.
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now back to the story. By 1886, it seemed that Cyrus Teed was finally fulfilling his destiny to deliver humanity to salvation. As the new president of the Mental Science Association, the 48-year-old finally had the chance to expand his influence. During a lecture at the group's convention, Cyrus mesmerized the crowd of mostly women. He mixed scientific terms with spiritual ideals to craft a convincing message. According to the book, The Allure of Immortality by Lynn Milner, Cyrus even healed a woman who had difficulty walking. This galvanized Cyrus's hold over the group. But what seemed to be the opening salvo of Cyrus's time at the Mental Science Association proved to be his peak. He had bigger plans. Soon after arriving in Chicago for the convention, he rented a building on 103rd State Street. There he founded a new organization called the Society Arch Triumphant. He intended to use it to siphon off mental science members. And he didn't stop there. He also started a monthly magazine called The Guiding Star to help spread his beliefs. And he founded the World's College of Life, a for-profit mental science school. At the opening ceremony, Cyrus referred to himself as Koresh, the Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus, to signify that he was a prophet. He also officially announced that his doctrine was called Koreshanity. He presented it as a superior mental science religious movement. His aggression immediately alienated the Mental Science Association's former president, Swartz. In a flash, Cyrus had burned a bridge. From here, it's clear that he only had one goal moving forward, to grow Koreshanity. To accomplish this, he solicited an interview with the Chicago Tribune. Over two hours of nonstop lecturing, he shared the details of his meeting with the angel decades ago. He called himself the last prophet and professed that he was born to teach humanity how to achieve immortality. His followers would know the truth. Marriage was degenerative, celibacy was key, and that the earth was hollow. According to Cyrus, we all lived inside the globe. Hearing these marvelous details, the Chicago Tribune was all too happy to run the story. Cyrus also started pushing advertisements for his World College of Life degree programs. Here, he showed his true intentions. He called the Mental Science Association and the Christian scientists vain fools and babblers who simply don't know what they're talking about. At the school of Koresh, Cyrus trained a teaching staff of 14 women, giving them doctorates in psychic and pneumic therapeutics. They taught a group of around 50 women Cyrus's healing techniques. But things started to crash and burn a year later, in 1888, after a patient died under Cyrus's care. While the man was likely suffering from pneumonia, Cyrus refused to treat the patient with anything but homeopathic remedies, prayer, and mind healing. 
When the man died, a local physician accused Cyrus of malpractice. An autopsy confirmed it, and the Chicago Tribune reported on the story. Shortly after, authorities arrested Cyrus on charges of practicing without a medical license in Illinois. At his trial, Cyrus was unapologetic and gave rambling, esoteric answers when asked about his medical beliefs. Not convinced, the jury found him guilty of practicing without a license. After a few hours in jail, he was released on bond paid by a follower. The ordeal was yet another mark against him, and he never officially practiced medicine again. The incident didn't really deter his core disciples back in Chicago, however. Despite everything, Koresh and Unity continued to recruit, gaining up to nine new members a week. On another front, Cyrus and his followers faced a financial crisis. After Cyrus moved his group into a much larger headquarters, he began to fall behind on bills. He hadn't paid his employees, and the rent for their headquarters was several months past due. While Cyrus had grown his brand, he hadn't brought in enough funds to keep the machine moving. To make matters worse, his landlord threatened to take the printing press for the guiding star. That would have eliminated Cyrus's ability to draw in more members and earn the funds he desperately needed. When things were at their most dire, a new believer stepped in to help. Henry Silverfriend, a shop owner, bought the printing press from Cyrus to prevent it from being seized. Then he gifted it right back to Cyrus. Having narrowly avoided ruin, Cyrus set out to find his divine, feminine equal so he could fulfill his destiny. At some point, he found her in Mrs. Annie Ordway, a married woman who joined the group in Chicago. Cyrus believed Annie was the woman the angel had prophesied. He renamed her Victoria Gratia, and she became his empress. He showered her with the adoration he'd never shown his first wife, Delia. Victoria was an austere and private person. She dressed in dark colors more often than not and appeared with Cyrus everywhere he went. Cyrus exalted her. Curiously, she remained married for some time, although she'd left her husband to live with Cyrus. No one could understand the hold Victoria had over Cyrus. She seemed to mesmerize him the way he captivated so many others. Their relationship, though, bred jealousy among Cyrus's 40 or so other followers. Throughout it all, he vehemently protected Victoria against criticism and malicious gossip. She was a precious validation that his prophecy was coming to fruition. With Victoria at his side, Cyrus was now ready to expand his utopia. He had his eye on a six-unit brownstone apartment building in Chicago to be the new communal home of the Koreshans. But the money to purchase it would certainly not come from Cyrus. Henry Silverfriend, the same man that had bailed Cyrus out of debt, came to his rescue again. He sold his family's dry goods business and used the funds to purchase the building on College Place for Cyrus. After that, Cyrus urged his best friend and earliest follower, Dr. Abby Andrews, to move to Chicago with his family. So they did. By early 1889, College Place was home to 28 Koreshans. Despite Cyrus's talk of a utopia, College Place was far from a promised land. Residents slept on the floors at first and couldn't afford heat. They spent their days ensuring the headquarters ran smoothly. They maintained the printing offices, gathered what they could to feed Koreshans, and facilitated the women's embroidery exchange. Victoria's job was to accompany Cyrus and occasionally deliver speeches on women's rightful and equal place in society. Dr. Andrews worked as a Koreshan doctor and head editor at The Guiding Star. 
Andrew's wife, Jenny, who'd kept Cyrus at arm's length for years, became a devout Koreshian after attending one of his lectures in person. Jenny described her instance of conversion as the most wonderful moment in her life. There was something in Teed's lecture that overwhelmed her and made her certain that he was the only man of God. Jenny's description of her conversion sounds similar to hypnotism. In 1979, an article by Sonia Hunt in the British Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology found evidence that hypnosis could be viewed as an agentic state. This means a subject gives up autonomy and relinquishes responsibility for their actions to the hypnotist. In such a state, the subject may perform obediently under hypnosis. It's unlikely, after years of skepticism, that Jenny suddenly found Cyrus's teachings to be wholesome and reasonable. Perhaps Cyrus's mesmerizing words, whether intentionally or not, pushed Jenny into a hypnotic state. Conversions like these made Cyrus renowned for his charisma. His message of equality also drew in many women. They saw Koreshanity as a bringer of independence and equality that was unavailable at the time. For their abandoned husbands, the story was different. Cyrus was nothing more than a rotten wife-stealer. As more Koreshian women moved into College Place, a media frenzy took hold. The Chicago Evening ran a story claiming Cyrus was responsible for breaking up families and swindling unsuspecting women. The power Cyrus had over people, particularly women, was peculiar. Many waited patiently for him to return to College Place each day. And while outsiders might see them as brainwashed, the women had practical reasons for following Cyrus. As Koreshans, they felt they had power over their bodies, purpose in their work, and a home safe from difficult or abusive marriages. In late 19th century Chicago, it was dangerous for a woman to live as a single person. Cyrus offered them respect and a community. The Chicago press thought otherwise. Despite promoting celibacy, Cyrus was painted as a flirt and philanderer in the media. While we'll never know the truth, several former Koreshians claimed that they had seen or experienced Cyrus's sexual advances. Faced with the mounting pressure, Cyrus added a new piece to his prophecy to get followers back on his side. He now said he'd be killed in a mob, perhaps by the abandoned husbands of Koreshian women, only to rise again like Jesus and lead his people. And despite the rumors, his community continued to grow, even developing a following in San Francisco. Times became somber, however, when Dr. Andrews, Cyrus's close friend and main financial backer, suffered a debilitating stroke. Cyrus desperately traveled to San Francisco to earn some more money and visit his new believers. There, women who left their husbands for the faith donated funds. With the cash, Cyrus expanded the group's publishing press in Chicago and renamed it The Flaming Sword. Forty Koreshians worked hard to produce additional pamphlets and lecture flyers to be distributed around the city. And in 1892, despite the odds, Koreshanity had grown to around 100 members. But the rays of a bright future dimmed when Dr. Andrews passed away. The immortality he'd been promised as a follower never came about. Cyrus continued with his mission. Now 54 years old, he kept his focus on the group's growth. Now that he had more followers, he needed a permanent compound. Coming up, Cyrus moves to one of Illinois' wealthiest neighborhoods.
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. And now back to the story. By 1893, Cyrus Teed's religious movement, Khorashanity, was thriving. However, Cyrus had lost his closest confidant and greatest supporter, Dr. Andrews. Cyrus wanted to take his project to the next level. He was ready to unite Koreshans from across the country in one place. With the help of Henry Silverfriend, he placed a deposit on a mansion in Washington Heights. Unfortunately for Cyrus, men in the wealthy neighborhood had read about his group and wanted nothing to do with him. They established a vigilante committee to send Cyrus at least one death threat. So, just before the Koreshans left for Washington Heights, Cyrus unexpectedly announced a change in plans. He, Victoria, and his closest affiliates would live in the mansion they named Beth Ophrah, after a town in the Bible where an angel appears. The rest would reside in a shoddy building called Sunlight Flats, miles away. At this point, there were 110 members of the group, and 83 of them were women. They had all expected to live with their leader in the mansion. Somehow, an anti-capitalist utopian managed to create a disparity in living conditions amongst his holy group. When Koreshans moved into Sunlight Flats, they sustained constant harassment from neighbors. And things inside the walls weren't much better. Cyrus didn't do much to take care of them. Cyrus, Victoria, and his inner circle were more comfortable, but they still faced problems of their own. One husband sued Cyrus for $100,000, the equivalent of around $3 million today, claiming Cyrus had lured his wife away from him. Another sued Cyrus for the same enormous sum, accusing him of unlawful intimacy with his wife. The husbands of Washington Heights also launched a more violent attack on Cyrus. One day, someone found a bomb under the front steps of the Beth Ophra mansion. The incident shook the Koreshans to their core. Victoria, Cyrus's divine equal, implemented a permit system. No one entered or left Beth Ophra without permission. However, this defense measure backfired, and other women started challenging Victoria's authority. This was a problem whenever Cyrus left town, because Victoria was put in charge, and the other women resented it. Following this turbulence, Cyrus started losing followers, and the conditions at Sunlight Flats remained horrendous. When Cyrus erroneously claimed tax-exempt status and refused to pay water taxes, the district shut it off. The Koreshans at Sunlight Flats were evicted at some point in 1893, and moved to another unwelcoming suburb. Meanwhile, several Koreshans left the group altogether. Cyrus made himself scarce at Beth Ophrah. 
He traveled frequently, boasting of his impending utopia. He offered immortality to anyone who became Koreshin and collected as many donations as possible. He had come too far to turn back now. Cyrus decided it was time for the Koreshins to escape the persecution and find an isolated haven for their new Jerusalem. He looked for a parcel of land on the southwest corner of Florida, in an area called Estero, near Fort Myers. In December of 1893, Cyrus traveled to Florida with Victoria, her secretary, and one of his longtime followers. The land in question belonged to a German homesteader named Gustav Damkuller. He was a widower who had lost three children to illness and lived with his only remaining child, 15-year-old Elwin. Elwin watched resentfully as his father fell under Cyrus's spell. Following their first meeting, Gustav became convinced Cyrus was a man of God. Gustav sold the majority of his land to Cyrus for $200, far less than the $6,000 he originally hoped to get. Cyrus allowed him to keep 20 acres, and Gustav agreed to become a Koreshin. He hoped that by joining the community, he would be looked after and supported for the rest of his life. While Gustav was convinced all was going according to Cyrus's prophecy, Elwin disliked the new leader. On a boat ride, he saw Cyrus take out a pistol and shoot two idling birds, severely injuring them just for the fun of it. The young man saw clearly what so many adults around him had failed to. Cyrus wasn't a messiah, and he certainly wasn't a god. Which meant that taming the swampy Florida landscape wouldn't be easy. The warm weather and tropical terrain was a paradise compared to a dreary Chicago winter, but the mosquitoes, ticks, and snakes were tough to deal with. In early 1894, a small group of Koreshans arrived to help build God's kingdom. The task was more reminiscent of a purgatory. They slept on the ground for 10 months, fighting off infestations of ground fleas at night, only to wake up and do hard labor all day. The first of the Chicago transplants worked hard to clear the land and build their new city. Those left behind waited patiently in Illinois to be formally invited to paradise. By Christmas of 1894, there were around 20 Koreshans in Estero, and things were looking up. Despite their previous problems with debt, the group was somehow able to acquire a sawmill. They used this new asset to produce lumber for their city. And the success didn't stop there. By 1896, they'd established a bakery, general store, multiple stores, and a worship hall. A few years later, they built Cyrus and Victoria a two-story home the Koreshans called the Founder's House. Followers planted vegetables and grains, and tended the citrus groves Gustav had painstakingly seeded with his son Elwin. While the setting in Estero was beautiful, life was anything but easy for the 30 or so Koreshans who lived there at the end of 1899. Followers were exhausted and often ill. Meanwhile, in Chicago, the remaining Koreshans planned a way to journey to the southeast. From Cyrus's perspective, he finally had the city he'd dreamed of. Now he could work on scientifically proving something he'd claimed for decades, his hollow earth theory. Cyrus posited that the Earth was concave, and we lived inside of it. To prove this, he commissioned Ulysses Morrow, a Koreshian and amateur scientist who once believed the Earth was flat. In 1897, Morrow led an expedition to Naples Beach, near Estero, to prove Cyrus's theory. Morrow used a T-squared instrument designed to make a constant right angle. He called it the geodetic rectilineator and used it to measure the Earth's curvature. While the science was suspect, the experiment proved successful. 
by correction measures at least, good news quickly reached Cyrus's followers. But while he and his disciples celebrated the milestone, Gustav Damkuller, the original landowner, had grown disillusioned. He left Estero for Fort Myers and filed a lawsuit with one of the most powerful attorneys in the region, Louis A. Hendry. Gustav claimed he'd been defrauded and lost everything. He said Cyrus had taken advantage of the depression he felt after the loss of his wife. He called Cyrus the prince of all the great liars, a man of sin, the prophetic person of the Antichrist. Gustav was examined by doctors, and one reported that he was likely suffering from religious mania. According to the American Psychological Association, religious mania is a state of acute hyperactivity, agitation, and restlessness, accompanied by hallucinations of a religious nature. Yet this diagnosis hid the complexity of Gustav's condition. Gustav had undergone severe stress and depression following the deaths of his wife and three children. Then he gave up his land and cabin to a man who claimed to be sent by God. But the Messiah he'd sacrificed for was a charlatan. He was justifiably indignant. And ultimately, he won his lawsuit. The court gave him back 80 acres as compensation, leaving the remaining 80 with the Koreshans. Gustav decided to sell his land to pay off debts and fund a new life outside of Florida. Making things worse, local merchants sued him for non-payment of credit. Then the Fort Myers Press released a damning report of conditions at Estero. Reporters found that there had been similar conditions at Cyrus's previous compounds. They documented unpalatable meals, lack of proper medical care, and long work hours. All the while, Cyrus sat by eating nutritiously and living well. When the news broke, Cyrus and the Koreshans were permanently vilified in the eyes of Fort Myers residents. With all of the criticism, some Koreshans deserted Cyrus and left Estero. Yet somehow the commune continued to grow. In 1903, after the remaining members in Chicago finally moved to Estero, around 200 people were living there. The following year, the tide turned in the Koreshan community's favor. The editor of the Fort Myers Press, Philip Isaacs, found himself running for a spot as the county judge and needed votes. There were 58 registered Koreshan voters, and in a town of only several hundred, that was a substantial amount. So he bargained with Cyrus to have his followers vote for him in exchange for stopping the bad press. Isaacs not only terminated his coverage on Estero, but also gave the Koreshans a column in the paper. That meant the Koreshans were free to recruit new members and enjoy their utopia. During these years, Estero was nearly industrialized. Koreshans produced clothing, tinware, baskets, and even cement. Unfortunately for Cyrus, though, the prosperity couldn't last. While politics had saved Estero in 1904, two years later, the climate changed drastically. The county judge Cyrus helped to install, Philip Isaacs, had Fort Myers under a vice grip of anti-tax legislation. Cyrus himself was staunchly pro-tax. He had recently incorporated Estero and could now receive money from taxpayers. He spent his whole life getting by on fluctuating income and had been paying a high property tax for his commune. Tax money would help his community stabilize. He organized Koreshans to vote for pro-tax candidates. This proved to be a fatal mistake. Isaacs found a way to have Koreshan votes invalidated, and a political battle ensued. On October 13, 1906, the tensions boiled over. A brawl erupted between Koreshans and Fort Myers locals over a misunderstanding about an alleged insult. 
The motive for the fight was unclear, and the story differs depending on whose account you read. Some even speculated that the fight was a setup, invented as a way for Teed's enemies to attack him. In any case, several men fought while 40 or 50 locals watched. In the brawl, Cyrus, at the age of 67, sustained injuries to his head and face. He was left with excruciating nerve pain. As the body and vitality he once relied on began to fail, he went into seclusion. Following the attack, Cyrus confined himself to a beach house and spent his days writing a novel. He eventually went back to the commune and resumed giving lectures, but spent more and more time in the unfinished annex of the founder's house. He even grew distant from Victoria, who he began to find irritating. He sent her on a trip and pretended he was getting better. But as the months passed, he became weaker. Sensing the end, he instructed his followers to place him in a zinc bathtub specially made to fit his body when it came time for him to die and be resurrected. In rare moments when he was pain-free, Cyrus communed with his followers to prepare them for what he called his theocratization. His mortal body would fail and he would be born again as a genderless god. On December 22, 1908, Cyrus T. died at the age of 69. His devotees followed his final directions and waited for his resurrection. Rigor mortis set in and later decomposition. The vigil lasted for five days. At first, Koreshans were excited to see their leader resurrected. But as the days passed, they grew worried and then confused. Many tried to explain away the delay. They remained by his doorstep until the county health inspector demanded they bury him. It became clear shortly after that he hadn't come back. And his other half, Victoria, had certainly not received Cyrus's soul in her own body, as he had prophesied. Four months after his death, she married a former Koreshian and resettled in central Florida. Meanwhile, most Koreshians remained in Estero. They still clung to the belief that he was their prophet and would somehow rise again. Slowly, however, some started to leave and form new communities. A few stayed in Estero well into the 20th century. The last believer passed away in 1982. Today, the Koreshian State Historic Site in Estero is a monument to Florida's not-so-distant past. Cyrus's prophecies never came to pass, and he never achieved his desire to be immortal in the way he envisioned. According to scholar J. Philip Arnold, the most substantial remnant of Cyrus Koresh Teed's prophecy may be with a better-known cult leader, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians. Arnold believes that David may have modeled himself after Cyrus. He took the last name Koresh and had a similar obsession with the Book of Revelation. He also blended science and religion into his doctrine and believed God was both a man and woman. If Arnold is correct, then Cyrus Koresh Teed did become immortal, in a way. Thanks for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Cyrus Koresh Teed, amongst the many sources we used, we found Lynn Milner's The Allure of Immortality, An American Cult, A Florida Swamp, and a Renegade Prophet, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. 
This episode of Cults was written by Keswa Boteng, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.